and we have been really spending some time over these past weeks closing this series of Philippians. We're kind of on the tail end of it. We only have a few weeks left, and we have been addressing something very critical. This idea of joy, that's been the overarching theme of the book of Philippians, and from joy, we've been talking about the importance of, of how we have it. In other words, the closing commentary Paul gives us in the fourth chapter of Philippians is really sort of like a, it's a closing exhortation that encourages us and challenges us to think about what it means to live in these rhythms permanently, okay? On a side note, sometime in November, we're still developing a hard launch date here. We're going to be kicking off a new series, which is connected to this one. Con a very different topic, if you will, but connected to sort of how we, how we grow in and know Jesus well. We're going to do a series called We Believe, and I want to walk through 20 or 25 of the, the most critical beliefs that we as Christians adhere to and why they matter in our life. And this, this concept of belief is something that we'll talk generally about today because the orientation of our heart deeply dictates what, what the orientation of our life looks like. So let me give you an example of this, especially as we talk about joy and being able to have it. A few years ago, I read an interesting news story about the ancient Babylonians, you know, pretty, I'd say kind of a wor world-class heavy hitter regarding the way they shaped culture that we live in. You know, they had, like the Romans, they had a lot of influence in the world. And they created a system of belief that is very popular today and has been for quite some time. Any of you kind of know what they, what they made? Let me just yell it out real quick. Well, it's maybe a good thing that you don't know this because it means you don't prescribe to it. The horoscope system. Like, the Babylonians were responsible for what we know as the Zodiac. The Bab uh, you know, essentially, Gemini, Taurus, all that good stuff. Some of you now are deleting, like, my horoscope app from your iPhone right now because you're like, oh, man, this is bad. God's pushing my button on my horoscope today. We want to avoid that. But interesting that they developed the Zodiac. And the Zodiac, as we'll talk about when we move into this new series, is another great example of belief. Uh, we live in a culture in the West where everybody thinks that we've moved beyond belief. We're in a place where we think that ration and logic and reason are the driving forces of how we make decisions. And they are a pretty strong uh, driving impetus in our culture. But that, too, is rooted in, in a belief assumption. And so you can see there's a myriad of these belief systems in our world today. And you have some folks in this that wouldn't even believe it is a belief system. But it is. It is a system of faith, if you will, in which you orient your life around. And so the funny thing about this belief system is two and a half years ago or so, something very challenging happened. There was an, uh, an astronomy journal that was published that talked about, because of the moon's gravitational pull, it had actually caused the Earth to slightly shift on its axis. Like nothing that you and I would notice, but it was sort of like a, a subtle incremental shift. And that's a big deal in, the ast in, in astronomy, but the challenge for the zodiac was that the zodiac revolves around the positioning of planets and stars, especially stars. And so the end result of this subtle shift, literally, no pun intended, is that the stars were kind of out of alignment. If you've ever heard that term, it's sort of rooted in the, in the zodiac. It, it, it describes a season in life when our stars are aligned, where things are smooth and generally going well. When they're out of alignment, it means that there's kind of an incongruency in what we want life to be and what's actually happening. And so the end result of this is that people's zodiac signs changed. So, for example, um, I am, you know, by the zodiac anyways, I'm a Gemini, but according to that new, that new kind of star alignment, I'm a Taurus, and I'm still recovering from the devastation of that, of that belief system. Gemini say, like, I have a twin out there someplace, and I don't know that we need another one of those. So, uh, very devastated, right? Now, listen to how the one news agency described this. They said, this change is going to come as a shock to people, to many people, who discover they've been reading the wrong sign their entire lives, Okay. And they're obviously not going to be necessarily happy. So think about this. Let's just say 
Um, I'm going to be very, very kind of metaphorical here. Let's just say, you know, your whole life you've been pursuing Jesus, and then one day it's completely debunked, all right? That'll never happen. People have been trying to do it for the better part of 2,000, for over 2,000 years. Uh, but that would be like world-changing to you. It would rock you at the core of who you are. This is how a lot of people responded to this. Their whole, you know, northern star, for lack of a better term, changed. And there's an interesting thing we can learn from this, and it is a principle that's applied to, uh, to any area of life where we are following something or turning to something for guidance. What you turn to in life for guidance is going to shape your life. Absolutely. It doesn't matter what it is. If you orient your life around, uh, for example, the term fanatic, right? Fanatic, uh, that's usually used in, a, in an athletic environment where if you've ever seen people sort of like, they travel the country following sports teams, right? They're sort of like decked out from head to toe. They have oriented their life around an athletic team. And because of that, everything they sort of do is, is they're living for that thing, right? Now, we love sports here. I'm not against them. But you can see the idea of fanaticism or the idea of what you turn to shaping your life is not just a, a theological or a Christian idea. It's a people idea. And here, people learn the hard way that what you turn to, if it turns out to be the wrong thing, in this case, it, it was the belief of a lie. I would say that. It was, it was a, a, a lie, I'm sure, that was paved with a good intention. But nonetheless, it turned out to be a completely false system of belief based on the, the inaccuracy of the stars. And so this is what I want to talk about today, what we're turning to, what we're looking to. Today we continue this study, this last teaching or sets of teachings in Philippians chapter 4. And over these past months, we've looked at two incredibly important themes in the Christian life. The first addressed how to follow Jesus in such a way that we experience the dynamic nature of the Christian life. What does it mean to dance to the rhythms of gospel, community, and mission? To know Jesus well, to experience his joy, you have to know the truth of Christ in the scripture, the gospel. You have to live that out in community. We don't live out truth and alone. Jesus did not give his Bible to the world and tell us to figure it out. In fact, the Christian faith as we know it was founded upon disciples, a group of men in community laboring together for the kingdom of God. Super important. And mission. Our love for Jesus is meant to shape our love for those who are very far from God. Important rhythms to dance to. The second is addressed how we remain in Jesus' joy. This is, a, this is a, a Philippians 4. Paul exhorts us, he challenges us, commands us to dwell on a certain set of things. He's saying, listen, the summation of all the Philippians is if you want Jesus' joy, you have to know what to focus the attention of your mind and your heart on. You have got to get to a place where you dwell on the things of God. That doesn't mean that you're naive to the reality of the world or the hardships of life. It just means that you are focused and dwelled on who God is in your life. And that is shaping all these other areas of your life. It is the relationship that defines all of the relationships. What we talked about last week at our seven-year anniversary service. Your profound love for God shapes a love for everything else in your life. And if you want those loves to be in order, that has to be in that order. So the first truth simply teaches us how to experience Jesus' joy, gospel, community, and mission. The latter is just as important. What we have been discussing is an encouragement in how we remain in Jesus' joy. Because joy can be a fleeting idea, a fleeting emotion, right? It can be there and it can be gone. So with this in mind, I want to jump in and look at the first dwelling truth that I want to talk about today. We're going to get very practical this morning. To fully experience Jesus' joy, and that is Paul's closing challenge to us. He doesn't want us settling for anything less than the full personhood and relationship of Jesus. He wants us to have it all, because Jesus has given us all. To fully experience Jesus' joy, you must first identify if you believe, key word, any lies about yourself. The reason belief is so critical in the Christian faith and belief does not mean a step of ignorance in the Christian faith. I'm sort of getting into my November sermon here. Belief simply means 
we have a, an, there's an affection in our heart that we, we put on something or someone, in this case, God. And Christian beliefs are not necessarily like blind leaps of ignorance. They're often just modest steps beyond that which we can see. If we want to know how to have joy, we have to first ask ourselves, do we have lies in our life? Do we believe lies about ourselves? Is there a truth that God wants us to know that contradicts the truth we tell ourselves, which is in the Christian world considered a lie? Let me explain. The reason knowing this is important is because every joy-robbing emotion in our lives is rooted in turning away from God's truth and grace in order to pursue a lie. This is indisputable. You can't get away from this in the scripture. Wherever there is a lack of joy, wherever there is a, a hardship that begins to dominate life, whenever we can no longer see true north and sense the presence of God in our life, it is because we have moved away from something that God wants us to believe is deeply true about him and ourselves, and we have begun to migrate towards something that is very untrue. It is a lie. I'll use that word because I think it's the right one. Look at the world's first sin, the original sin, caused by the lie syndrome. The first lie humanity trades for truth is when Adam and Eve choose to believe a lie about who they should be at the expense of who God actually says they are. They choose to reorient their belief system. And what happens here is the, the lie that we read about in the garden is that God's heart is not going to be grieved or angered when they violate his command to not eat from the tree. In fact, and this is the premise of where I'm going today, they believe the lie so deeply that they actually think it's true. They actually get to this place where they think like, hey, doing this, like living into the, pressing into the lie is actually going to please God because we're going to know stuff like he knows. We're going to have knowledge like him. And what's interesting about this story is both Adam and Eve clearly know this isn't the truth. Just before they choose the belief track, they jump track here, they actually affirm the truth. They verbally state that they know God says, like, we shouldn't mess with the tree, but we're going to do it because it's a good thing now. And that's an interesting episode, one that you will find repeats itself over and over in the Bible. And this is true in our lives. If we look at the harder areas of our life, the challenges that we often face in life, the root of what the challenge is is in this idea. What's interesting about this story is that Adam and Eve know it's not the truth, yet they convince themselves it is. And at the core of that original sin is a deep-seated lie. It manifests itself in a certain way, but there is a root attitude that drives the behavior. And when you peel back the layers of every sin, no matter what it is, every emotion that takes joy away from your life, what you will see is that the core of it is always a lie. In Genesis, people believe knowledge is going to give them some satisfaction God could not. And I say this all the time. This is the definition of an idol. It's when we get to this place where we believe a lie so much, where we believe we can find something, fulfillment from something that isn't God, like a relationship, an object, a lifestyle, stuff, whatever it is, we start thinking that stuff can please us in a way that it cannot, in a way that God only can. And the blunt reality of that story is that it shows us the more you distance yourself from God's truth and grace, which we've talked about at length in this series, the more inclined you will be to believe a lie about yourself. You're going to believe something. It is completely preposterous to think that there is no longer a belief assumption in the Western world. Five minutes at a coffee table, you'll be able to identify what somebody believes, what the object of their ultimate trust is in. It might not be a religious figure or head, but it is something. Everybody believes in something. Now, let me give you another example of this, a rather famous example. It's my favorite example in the Bible because it's actually the first sermon I ever taught some 20 years ago, and it's the story of David and Bathsheba. And that dude's life is packed with all kinds of amazing things we can learn. Right? The Old Testament, if, you, if you've read the Old Testament, you know that David is described, he's one of the few people in the Bible that gets this descriptor of being a man after God's own heart. Like God looks at him and says, this guy is really like me. Amazing compliment. 
literally has a relationship with God that defines a nation. If you understand the story of Israel, you know that David, David's exemplary faith in Jesus, excuse me, in God, is actually what starts to shape the religious affection of a nation. Yet he gets to this place in his life where something crazy happens. He has an affair, and he murders his best friend to cover it up. Now, there's an interesting question we have to ask here. How does this happen? Well, it happens when you believe lies. That's how it starts. Nobody gets up, nor did King David, get up one day and just say, it's a little rainy out. I'm going to have an affair and murder my best friend. That's not the way it usually works in our lives, right? It might end up there, whatever the, you know, whatever the metaphorical reality of that is in our lives, but seldom does somebody genuinely following the Lord start here. What starts is that this, this crazy thing that happens. And I mean crazy because the person he kills to cover up the affair, the, the husband of the woman he has the affair with, is his best friend. It's his most loyal soldier. That's what we read about. So he basically took out the most loyal person he had on earth to cover up that mistake. And what happens here is not, it, it's a slow self-deception. It's a slow absorption of a lie. And the lie is identified in 2 Samuel 11.1. 1. It'll be behind me. Listen to what we read here. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. And they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. So something interesting happens here. You have, you have Israel's king, David, who has a specific responsibility to be in the field with his men fighting for his country. That's what the king of Israel should be doing right now. However, he chooses to not do that. There's an, a disobedience factor here. He knows the will of God for his kingship. The people of God demanded a king, and he gave him one. And this is part of the responsibility of a king in the ancient Near Eastern world. They're supposed to be out with the men fighting battles during the spring. He believes a little lie. I don't need to be with the men. And this, in turn, leads to a place where he goes down the road of other lies, and there's some pretty serious consequences here. Now, maybe you're here saying, that's a really great story, Anthony, but I'm not a king. In the spring, I think about, like, opening my windows, not going off to war and fighting the Babylonians. I get that. But I want you to know there's a root principle here that matters because we all have our springs in life. This is what fuels the problem we're talking about today. Every single one of us has a spring. Every single one of us has a place where God desires us to be. And when we subtly step away from that place, it creates the lie syndrome we're, gonna, we're talking about. King David's story shows us most people don't just get up one day and decide they want to trade God's truth for a lie. It's usually much more subtle than that. And there is a pattern associated with it. The sprint towards sin typically begins with a leisurely walk that is left unchecked. And eventually it becomes a spring. Let me give you some examples. Let me give you some common examples today that we see amongst the people of God. Forget wrestling with the objections of culture. For a moment, I want to talk about the things that we often see in God's people, the people who proclaim to follow Christ. It begins when we begin to say things like, life is very busy right now, uh, and therefore I don't really have time to read the Bible. I can't do that right now. That's not just, it's, not, it's not that it's not a priority. It's just that, man, work is crazy and kids are off the chart. Stuff's going on and I get it. I, I know I got to do that. I'm supposed to do that. But I'm just, there's no space for that right now. I'll get to that next month. And, you know, once spring passes, I'll get there. Or another common one is when people start to say things like, you know what? I've been praying an awful long time about some really specific stuff. And I like read that Bible verse in the Gospels where Jesus says, like, if you wanted to ask it in my name, and it hadn't happened yet. And so I'm done praying. I'm over this thing. I, clearly God doesn't hear my voice. I'm just going to move on from that. We move. Our, our spring is to continually bring our matters to God, and we don't. Or it's when we say things like, hey, I know God wants me to be in meaningful, I mean real, meaningful, encouraging relationships with my church family. 
Not the Truman Show, right, where everything's plastic and white and perfect. I mean, meaningful relationship is always a beautiful and messy thing. That's just the way it is. Because we have been built to be beautiful and messy. We're both ways. We are, and some days the mar- we're, we're like the chief, the apex of all the creation. We get it right, and then some days not so much. Beautiful and messy. And if we can recognize that people are like this, and when I say people, we're including ourselves in that paradigm, it changes this attitude here. This attitude is rooted in a problem. I know God wants me to be in meaningful, encouraging relationships. I know God wants me to disciple and be discipled. But I'm the kind of Christian who does it better on my own. I've learned over the years that the only person I can trust in life is me, which guarantees that you are the only person in life that cannot be trusted when you start thinking that way. Because there's no external objectivity. There's no accountability there. You're left to kind of you know, move into your own uh, musings without any type of input. Truth inputs here. You want to learn how to believe lies, that's the way to do it. I know God wants me to use my life and my time and my resources. I know he wants me to see my life as a platform for the gospel in the world. But things are crazy right now, and when winter comes, I'll get back to that. Spring's just out of control. I'll get around to it next month. Or maybe it begins, to those of you in the professional world, when you bend the rules ever so slightly at your job. You know, you know there's a benefit to that. It's great for the company, but, but maybe, maybe even for yourself. And you, you make a subtle shift to do something that maybe isn't entirely wrong, but sort of is a little bit, right? Or it's when we start to tell ourselves, super common in today's world, hey, I know I work a lot, and we are for work here. We've, I have whole sermons on it. We are for vocation. It is the future of God's kingdom in the world. It's us recognizing where God has placed us and laboring well for Jesus in those areas. But we get to this place where we work so much that we become the workaholic. And there can be a time where there is an abusive vocational structure. There are definitely companies in our world today that don't care about people. And they just want, they basically just want to burn you down to the bones. That is out there. But I find that the starting point most people have with their job is this. My job is fill in the blank. And while that can be true, we want to be very mindful that we don't kind of step into the problem we talked about two weeks ago. Maybe it's not the vocation that's killing us. Maybe it's us that's killing us in the vocation. Maybe we are working too much, not even because it's expected. You know, the workaholism factor where other things are neglected in life, but we're doing it for the approval of co-workers or supervisor. Maybe we want to climb the ladder. And climbing the ladder isn't wrong in life, but you have to ask what the cost of it is when you get to the top of it. Some of us want to justify our existence before other people. We work to prove ourselves. We don't rest in the approval of God and work out of that. Your life will look two, it'll be two different tracks you go down in life. One will likely have healthy relationships in it, the other not so much. The love priority is out of order. Sure, you never see your family, but you're up for a promotion. Awesome. Right? Or it's when someone tells themselves, hey, when I get another job or when I get a little better off, if my, ki- my kids are just out of sorts right now, it's a tough season in life. When they're in order, I'll be great. If I just get married, it'll be good. If I just get divorced, it'll be good. If I can get some more money in the bank, it'll be good. The problem is I have too much money. I re- it's like it, we, we have no boundary in how we can sort of mess this stuff up. I, I, when, you know the Powerball happened a couple of weeks ago or about a month ago, and it was like the biggest one like in the history of America. And because of that, all these news entities were writing about it. And all the articles were talking about like, I'm not exaggerating, how to not screw your life up if you win the lottery. They're basically saying there's like a pattern. Like people without money think money will help them get better. And then people, when they get the money, they use the money to screw up their life. That's essentially what the lottery was saying. They were saying like a lot of people get to this place where they don't know how to manage the funds and they wind up hurting themselves. And so we've got to be careful to not believe the lie. We can always turn to these circumstances as if we believe they're the things that are kind of ravaging us. But the truth is that God wants us to have peace and purpose in the circumstance. And so whatever it is, the Bible's clear that without truth, without God's truth and grace, 
people often become expert at lying to self. That's the natural end of this equation. Without God's truth and grace, people don't just believe the lie, they can actually start to live for it. And this is when the, the leisurely walk turns into a sprint. And we can actually get to the place in life where we are so desensitized to the truth that the lie actually becomes truth. I'll give you another example of this. I read an interesting article in a, a very good periodical called Christianity Today that talked about this. This is not just a Christian complex. If you even talk to those in the psychology field, they'll say the same thing. This article talked about a growing problem of lying in our culture and how we are not only prone to lie at times, but we can actually get to the place where we truly believe the lies we're telling. And that's what I'm talking about here. It's not the grandiose lies. It's more the subtle ones that we let shape life. It's a genuine, and it sort of almost seems ironic to say a genuine self-deception, right? We wouldn't think those two ideas go together in the same sentence, but that's what is happening here. It's a benevolent self-deception, and it causes us to see ourselves and our circumstances under a false premise. There's no longer objectivity in how we see things. There's no truth check. And the article pointed out that a person can tell themselves a lie so regularly that they believe it is the truth. This is sort of where the mind bender happens. I'll give you some common examples. I use this one a lot because I've been like guilty of it. So if you've been saying since like 1982, I'm going to the gym next week, you are not going to the gym. That's not going to happen. 1982 ain't here no more, but the gym is still around and you're not in it, right? It ain't going to happen. Same thing, right? Whatever it is, we can get to that place where we justify that stuff and it never happens. Or maybe here's another common one. And this is particularly true in Florida. Maybe we're really tardy, right? This is the tardiest state on earth. That's what it should say on the license plate, Florida, the tardiest state on earth, right? We get to this place where, don't get me wrong, tardiness can be a legit thing. I, it can happen. There are definitely legitimate reasons. But I'm not talking about the legitimate reasons here. I'm talking about what happens when we begin to live in the lie. A lot of people who are perpetually tardy always have good excuses. My alarm didn't go off. Or the kids are really sick. I worked late last night, whatever it is. Now, that's the lie. Stuff happens. Hear me. Tons of grace with that. Stuff happens. Uh, but you have to be careful. If tardiness is a thing, well, you want to be careful to not make sure, to, you want to make sure you're not convincing yourself that you're responsible with time, but you're not, because if you were responsible with time, you'd be on time. That's the normal thing. So what s tends to happen is I find um, people who are perpetually late always have a good reason for why they're perpetually late, and they believe they're responsible with time, which is why they're still always perpetually late. Dr. Seuss, you know, uh, nursery rhyme there. You can't move past the tardiness if you don't recognize the problem. Living in a lie can also lead to all kinds of, kind of narrowing the focus here, joy-robbing emotions. And that's the premise of what Paul is saying. What you dwell on is going to change the way you live. It's going to shape the way you live. It can be a real contributing factor to depression. As people start to feel like they don't matter, like nobody cares for them or wants to be around them, when you, when you start telling yourself that lie enough, it's going to become a perceived truth that guides your life. And it's a contrarian uh, truth because what God says is you do matter. I put you in community so that you can recognize you matter, so you can physically hear this from people. And if you're not careful, you might actually dwell on things that take you away from me. So all these examples and the, the millions I didn't even mention, they cause us to ask an interesting question. They beg a serious question. Why can some people tell lies like this to self and so easily believe them? How come this can become, when we say like a, a person genuinely following Jesus, we want the default, the knee-jerk reaction of their life to be, what does the Lord say about this? How come people can actually get to this place where the knee-jerk reaction is to, is to communicate a lie to self, which keeps them from knowing what the Lord says about whatever it is we're going through? There's a very, very, very simple answer to this, that has, it's, but it's complicated in the way it fleshes out in life. At first, living in the lie always feels more comfortable to the human heart than dwelling in God's truth and grace. 
I think this is the answer. If you want to know why it's much easier to tell lies, it's because that always feels better at first. It is typically more comfortable to the human heart than approaching truth and grace. For example, just use the examples I just gave you. It's much easier to think you're going to the gym than it actually is to go to the gym, right? It's much easier to justify why you're late to everything than it is to discipline yourself to be on time. It's much easier to tell yourself, I will follow Jesus next week in this area of my life than it is to actually start following him right now in that area of your life. It's much easier to walk the road of isolation than it is to branch out and do the hard work of building meaningful relationships with people, of having a long-suffering posture with people as they go through stuff in life, of applying a relational love to people, the same one God applies to you. You see, when you live in a lie and believe the lie, when you stop, you stop the process of maturing out of it. You cannot mature out of a lie if you don't think it's a lie. In fact, I would say you plug up the joy process. It's a truth issue. And eventually, that lie will catch up with you. Like you might need open heart surgery one day, or eventually your boss says, hey, you, get, you need to get your kids in order because you're late to everything. I can't have this anymore, or whatever it is. You're, how many car breakdowns do you have in a week? You know, that kind of a thing. Or when it comes to our relational stamina with people, um, what I find is people will just stop counting on you. Eventually, like, um, I might have told you this story in the early days of restoration. I had a guy that did uh, music for me, and I had this conversation with him. So if he's listening, there's no gossip here. Uh, this was in New Orleans. He was my worship guy. He was late to everything. I mean everything. I think he was late to his own birth, like everything. Didn't matter what it was. And um, one, one day, myself and my associate pastor and him, we had to meet at Sam's uh, to, to buy like 100 chairs, okay? We, and this was post-Hurricane Katrina. We were rebuilding our facility. And we just said, hey, let's meet at Sam's. Chairs will be loaded. We'll be there at 5. From 5 to 6, we'll have this stuff picked up and dropped off um, at, the, at the church. And so, anyways, my, I got there, and my associate pastor got there, and my worship guy never showed up. And when I called him that night to find out what happened, and I was hoping he would say something like, both my legs are broken, I couldn't be there, but I knew that wasn't going to be the case. He said, well, you know what? I just got to thinking, like, um, you're really hurting my marriage now by making me be with you from 5 to 6. I need to go home and be with my wife. And I was like, hurting your marriage? This is ridiculous. Like, we're not hurting your marriage. We asked you to help us unload chairs for an hour, okay? Perpetually late to everything, missed everything, but got to this place in life where he thought that by us moving chairs, he was going to need marital counseling the following week, right? It's a bit of an issue um, because the thing is he didn't care, and he lived in that life for a long time, and we had some hard conversations about that. He still never picked up the chairs, but nonetheless, we did. We bore the load for that, and that's a great example where when, when the economy of your life is out of sorts in that area, it is so easy, it is so easy to defer blame to everything else in your life. But when you sort of have an objective, rational like understanding of things, a spiritual understanding of things, it changes things. You can look at that and say, listen, if, if the chairs, if that was enough to break the back of your marriage, I'm going to guess it wasn't the chairs. This is the spring. We ended up here, right? There's something that happened far, far prior to this that caused this neglect feeling. This is the challenge with the lie. The more you live in it, the more, the more sane it becomes to your own life. And so when God makes plain the reality that we're believing a lie, and that typically comes through his truth and people who care about us who are sharing it, you have to make a choice to turn away from the lie. You also have to be able to receive that. This is part of a problem with, with lies and truth is a lot of times people are not receptive to it. And so this leads me to the second truth I want to share with you today. We all have things we believe that are not perfectly the truth, God's truth. And to believe contrary to that is not true. We are not perfected beings. That will only happen when we are in heaven. So we would be wise to think it is possible and probable some days that we will migrate to the lie, whatever it is. And so when you do identify a lie in your life, when God is clear with you in this area, 
You have to dwell on the truth and grace of God to deal with it. We need a corrective plan. There's a dwelling rhythm we have to talk about. And so turning to God's truth and grace is a discipline that always takes some time to get used to. That's why I say it's easier to live in the lie. Turning to God's truth and grace is a discipline you have to, you have to get used to. It's sort of like talking to somebody, uh, and I'm going to share this story because it's fresh on my mind, who, had a, who ate a lot of fried food in their life, okay? I like fried food. I eat it on occasion. But if you ever came from a culture, like in the Italian world, a lot of stuff gets fried. And that was really good through my 20s. But then through my 30s, I was like, hey, I need some, pep- uh, some Pepsi at AC here. And then now that I'm in my 40s, I'm very selective with fried food. And so a couple of weeks ago, two weeks ago, my cousins got married. My cousin got married in St. Augustine. All my family from North came down. Uh, yeah, it's so many jokes in my head. I'm just going to let them go. All of them. My cousin <laughs> got married in St. Augustine. Uh, with all of, it was a great kind of family reunion. And uh, we ate, my wife and I and kids, we ate at this really great seafood restaurant we like there. Now, this has nothing to do with the seafood restaurant. This has to do with my belly. Uh, but we, it's the best fried shrimp, I think, in, in, at least I've had in the state. Excellent. And so we went there, and I hadn't had fried, like deep fried food like that in a long time. And it was delicious going down, but it did sort of irritate me afterwards. And I got to thinking about this. This is sort of what we're talking about here. So, If you eat a lot of that stuff all the time, nothing wrong with it, I love it, and then you sort of take a break from that stuff, it's likely it will have a a, a reaction to your body. And what I learned is that my body was sort of telling me, um, you can't eat this stuff all the time. It has an effect. This has been removed largely from your body. And now that it's been reintroduced, you're sensing just how sort of traumatic the experience was. This is sort of a great example of how removing a lie from your heart is. If you're eating fried stuff all the time, it tastes really good. And you might not even really know how it's hurting you until it actually starts hurting you. Your faith is very similar. You might not know if you're, if you're dwelling in, for example, a relational lie. You might not really understand the gravity of what that damage is until it is kind of taken away. Until you can objectively say, oh man, you know, I have been selfish. Oh my gosh, this is a major issue here, right? You start to sense the challenge there. You, you, you now can sort of live in the freedom because of the removal of the problem. And once Jesus has set you free by redeeming you from his truth, returning to a lie should upset our spiritual stomach. The same principle is there. Now, where it'll break down is I'm not saying don't eat fast fried food. I'll eat fried food again at some point. But I think when we talk about, like, God's truth, when, it has been ta- when a lie has been removed from you, to reinsert the lie into the body, should, it should set off the spiritual stomach. We should be, like, restless in that area of life, upset, if you will because your soul has experienced something much better. Now, even though it might be a little bit bitter at first, this is why I think this is the challenge point for people. Even though it might be a little bitter at first, once you truly taste freedom like this, it really becomes like a hydration, a living living water to the soul, just using Jesus' John language. And that's because at first, the truth always feels like a lie. Follow me here. At first, the truth always feels like a lie to those who are living in a lie or struggling with joy-robbing emotions. If you've struggled with depression and somebody says you matter, that does not sound true to you because the emotion is driving the truth. This is part of the great lie. I'm not, you know, railing on emotions here. I'm just saying you have to be able to balance emotions with truth. It's the emotional evidence of what the Bible calls being a slave to sin. Whenever, or it's a moral evidence or a spiritual evidence, whatever it is, you have to be able to put those things on this scale on God's scale, and let the truth outweigh the lie. The beauty in this is that when you do struggle with something, whatever the lie is, and we all struggle with stuff, Jesus says his truth can set us free from every lie in life. If you'll turn to it, 
Thus the point of the message. What is it you choose to dwell on? You know, oblivious to the lie or focused on truth. And here is really where the rubber meets the road in a, in a message like this one. It's when we get to the root of a joy issue, what starts happening is we, we expose the motive of the heart. The absence of joy is the, is the expression of the problem. But what's driving that is really what fixes the problem. Earlier in this series, I said every joy struggle typically finds its root in us turning away from God and trusting in something that isn't God. And more often than not, that something is us. We can cloak it in sophisticated ways, but it really becomes us. And when the Christian starts to believe that lie, or any person, like you are the end game, the arbiter of all that is good and right and true in the world, that's a lie in and of itself. Even on our best days, we can't live up to that moniker. When we start to believe that we are the author or the authority of lasting joy or perfection in our lives, we have to know that the truth says something contrary to that. The truth says that that power alone to bring that about in us, it, it rests in God. It's God's power. And in order to kind of experience that, to live in his fullness, you have to take the first and perhaps most important step. You must dwell in the truth. If you want to believe you matter in life, then you should really ask the God who has made you if you matter in life. And you know what the answer to that is. Yes. You have to inoculate your life with truth. And you have to wrestle with truth. Because not all truth is easily swallowed. But the goal of the believer is to sort out what truth is and to orient our life around it, God's truth. One of the greatest ways you turn to that is, and trust in Jesus is by turning the pages of his scripture. So listen to how a guy that's influenced me a lot, I quote him in here a lot, a guy named Tim Chester explains this in his book. Okay? He's written a ton of books, but the one I'm going to reference here is a book called, it's about change. And I want to reread to you, this is how we'll wrap up this morning, Proverbs 4, 18 through 23. This is what we read. And then I want to just share with you his commentary. It's a brief paragraph. Both, both will be behind me. Proverbs 4, 18 through 23. The path of the righteous is like the morning sun, shining ever brighter till the full light of day. But the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. Here's where we get into the lie, right? They are stumbling, but they don't know they're stumbling. My son, pay attention. My daughters, pay attention to what I say. Turn your ear to my words. How do you stumble out of the darkness into the light? You have to make the turn. You have to make the shift. Turn your ear to my words. Do not let them, those words, out of your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and health to one's whole body. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. What you crown, what you put on the top of your heart, it will dictate the direction of your life. And Chester describes this in very, you know, kind of layman's terms like this. He says, Proverbs describes the road of trust in God as like the light of dawn, like the rising of the sun. Maybe you feel as if you're in the darkness, you're trapped in a behavior, uh, you have a negative emotion weighing heavily upon you. You're seeing them as symptoms of a lack of trust and unbelief in God. It can be like the first gleam of dawn. Hope dawns with the realization that the answer is found in looking to God. And it is a long road that takes a lifetime to travel. This is the importance of community. It's a long road that takes a lifetime to travel. But with every step, the light of God's goodness shines brighter and brighter until the full day. We follow this road by paying attention to the word of God. God's word is our roadmap. And the gracious promises of God give true life and health. The truth will guard our hearts and therefore our lives. If you want a life that's in order, you need to have a truth that is in order. And so here's how I would explain what Proverbs says. Here's my last statement to you this morning. The bottom line in all of this is that Jesus' truth will set you free from every struggle. But the caveat is you must know it. You have to know it. 
For example, you won't know that the root of all of our joys issues stem from the fact that we've been made to worship God and worshiping anything else in our lives will prove dissatisfactory to our soul unless you're dwelling in that truth. You will never know that if you're enslaved to sin, if you're struggling with worry and doubt, freedom is found in trusting in the care of your heavenly father. You will never experience freedom unless you know that truth. You will never know that all joy in life is rooted in a profoundly simple but powerful command Jesus gives us in the Gospel of John. It is not hard to understand, but it can often be difficult to apply when he tells us that a true follower of Christ will hold to his teachings. That's why we're going to do a doctrinal series. We hold to the teachings, not because they're dusty, antiquated scrolls in some ancient library, but because they are life, and that life leads to truth. And when you do, that truth sets you free. You can't know any of that unless you are dwelling on God's truth and asking God to make those words real, asking God to let those words penetrate the depths of your heart, asking God to make the truth actually true to you. Slowly turning away from the lie of unbelief and to the truth of God like this doesn't ever, I'm not saying it can't, but I don't think it ever really makes things immediately better. It's like what Proverbs says. It's like the rising of the sun, slow and beautiful but powerful. It's the beginning of a dawn breaking through darkness. And I think what that equates to in life is it's, it's a bit of a gradual weight lifted from a heavy heart. So we have to reverse the paradigm. We have to trade the lie for truth. We've got to hand the lie back to the enemy where it belongs and ask God for the truth. And that is the beginning of a fruitful journey of restoration. It's a, it's, it, it identifies that you're on the path to healing. So don't take offense this morning or be discouraged if you figured out that you have been believing some lie in your life. I suspect we all are in some area. Don't be offended if you feel like God has shown you a place and given you a particular reason for why you might be without his joy. You have to know God has given us this teaching so that we could see that. He does not want us to stumble in the darkness. Even when he points these things out to us, that is a grace. It is him saying, you don't want to be in the darkness anymore. Great, let me, let me bring you back to the light. That is God's goodness. It might not feel that way at first, but it is his goodness. Choose to follow the father of truth. Believe Jesus gave his life for you so you could be set free. He died so this could be a reality. It matters to him. It should matter to us. And as we close, ask yourself this morning, really pointedly, and use the communion table as your guide here, what truth have you traded a lie for in your life, and how is that keeping you from being who God wants you to be? Identify if there are lies in your life keeping you from being who Jesus wants you to be. Ask yourself, what areas are marked by doubt and fear? That's a good way to get into the lie. If you identify what you are afraid of, what you fear in life, what you doubt, you can often track that back to a root lie issue. I'm afraid of everything because I don't trust God. Ask yourself what truth you can turn to to inoculate your soul from that lie. And if you don't know what that truth is, let us know in those cards. Call us or email us. Let us help you figure that out because we're all on the same journey. So as you ask those questions, no, God wants to help you answer them. He doesn't want you leaving with an unclear step. And he wants to be a presence in your life to help you overcome them. We're all on that same, we're all involved in that same process. And so as we move into response time and communion, ask yourself, what is Jesus saying to you about your life today? What is he saying to you about truth and lies? And what do you intend to do about it? Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for truth. Uh, That word, depending on where it is uttered and how it is perceived, can be a word that sets people free. And in some circles of our culture today, the word truth is not even received anymore. It's frowned upon and it's viewed as it's viewed as something that robs us of freedom. And I pray, Lord, if that is where we are, no matter where we are today, 
that we would genuinely, genuinely come before you and ask you to show us the role of truth in life. For those of us who are in you, I pray, Lord, that you would, you would reveal and put on our hearts a burden to know your word. For those of us, Father, who are wrestling with truth, the concept in general or anything else, I pray, Lord, that in your grace, you would just make very clear and plain to us the next steps you have. Help us to deal with that. Help us to objectively and honestly wrestle with the things we wrestle with. Provide a guidance for us in that area, whether it's directly through you, your word, your people. And I pray, God, that it would be a combination of all three. And I pray, Lord, that as we, as we move to the communion table, that we would never forget this is one of the cardinal evidences of your truth. This is the example that everything you said, everything you did, it would be it would be inaugurated truly on the cross through your resurrection. And so this is a time now where we can touch truth. And I pray, Lord, as we imbibe these sacraments and reflect upon our life in you, that you would genuinely use them to help us understand the cosmic love you have for us, the grace you showed us on the cross, and how it has paved the way for the relationship we have spoken about with you this morning. Direct our steps now. Focus our attention on you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.